If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. This week, Julian Bagini leads a cerebral squad of thinkers at the Fortified Towers of Religion, Reason and Spirituality. With religion increasingly sidelined, can reason still make sense of the wonders of the world? Or does spirituality offer something that the secular overlooks? Anthony Gottlieb, Miriam Francois and Linda Woodhead take up the reins. Thanks very much. Well, for, for quite a long time, a dominant kind of received wisdom in uh, certainly Western academic studies has been this secularisation thesis that as societies become richer and wealthier and better educated, religion becomes less important. I think in recent years there's been a little bit more questioning of it. Is it something which is inevitably going to continue? Um, how do we make sense of the American exception? And I suppose more import- importantly... Uh, the critique has always been from the other side that this secularisation leaves a spiritual hole in society, which, if it is not filled, will lead to all sorts of disasters. Um, that's kind of what we're talking about today. We have a very good panel to talk about it. Professor Linda Woodhead, uh, leading sociologist of religion, who, who, who knows more about the secularisation thesis and how it plays out, particularly in Britain, than anybody else. Dr Miriam Francoise, who's a journalist and a very interesting career. I, I wish we had a session on her, our life story, actually. Child Hollywood actress, converted to Islam, and now a writer and uh, advocate, a feminist. Anthony Gottlieb, who's former executive editor of The Economist and now fellow of All Souls College. Is it the case that a fully secularised sort of like worldview leaves something out? That there, there, there needs to be and a space for the spiritual and indeed it's sort of justifiable. There's a justification for, for that. It's not just a kind of human weakness that they want to go for the gods. Um, maybe I'll start with Anthony. Mm, Three okay. minutes. If someone were to put a gun to my head and say, none of this philosophical shilly-shallying and definitions and stuff, just give us a yes or no answer or I will kill you. If somebody, <laughs> <laughs> if somebody said that, then, then I, I would uh, answer in, in the negative. Uh, that no, there isn't anything about uh, the world that makes it the case that we ought to be spiritual or that we need to be spiritual. But uh, given that nobody is holding a gun to my head, uh, I think the first thing uh, one ought to do is to dismantle the question because spirituality means so many different things. Now, uh, sometimes people uh, talk of spirituality just in terms of something that you can contrast with 
materialism in the economic sense. So, you know, I don't want to just think about money and my job. I want to have a deeper life. So, they mean spirituality just in that sense. Uh, it can also mean uh, what a friend of mine once called a floaty blah. So, that covers <laughs> uh, an awful lot of uh, new age superstitions, uh, eco uh, mysticism, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, then, of course, there's the traditional religions, and maybe that's what we're uh, supposed to focus on. Uh, then, I suppose, there is a, the sort of religious position that I imagine is, is quite uh, common in Britain and many other countries, and that is where someone doesn't, where people don't really feel any attraction to uh, organised religion, but there are one or two theses within organised religion, such as the existence of God, that they are rather tempted by. So I think the, f the first thing we need, we need to do is to work out what type of uh, spirituality uh, we are talking about here. Um, I'm also a little puzzled. Uh, another respect in which I'd like to uh, dismantle the question a little bit is uh, I'm a bit puzzled by the idea of uh, asking whether reason is enough to make sense of the world. So it seems to me that whenever we are in the business of making sense of something, we are ipso facto making use of reason. So, in another sense, I don't quite understand the question. Okay. Not that more I can tell you. Maybe I should stop there for now. Well, we'll say more about reason in a minute. So, that's typical stuff. You ask a philosopher a question, you get six questions back, right? Um, but that's good. That's good. There'll be six other questions for each of those questions later, too. Um, Miriam. I guess, firstly, I'd start out by saying that the idea that um, religion is on the wane seems to me quite a Eurocentric perspective on religion in societies all around the world. Religion continues uh, in various forms to play a very important part in people's lives. Um, and in many ways, I would regard European experience uh, and particularly the process of secularization, which is linked to very specific historical occurrences, the French Revolution, Enlightenment, to be perhaps the historical anomaly rather than what we might consider it to be, which is the standard. And there's a reason we consider it the standard, because historically, the West has thought of itself as the most progressive, the most quote-unquote enlightened uh, part of the world, which has premised its um, encroachment on other parts of the world on the idea that it carries an idea of progress which is beneficial to others. And I think that that perhaps is where we need a little bit more introspection about uh, how dismissive we've been about religion and perhaps people who come from a religious perspective. Um, that said, I think we've also confused um, what I would call economic progress, um, financial progress with moral human progress. And so the confusion of the two has led us to assume that uh, because of uh, largely forms of um, military-led imperialism that our financial <coughs> success on a global scale somehow reflects some sort of moral superiority. Uh, which allows us to look at the rest of the world as having somehow lagged on the deve developmental spectrum. And that's in many ways what was the motor for colonialism and continues to be the motor for forms of imperialism. Um, I also think another reason we're quite dismissive of religion in general is because I think it speaks to um, emotions. It speaks to something very profoundly 
um, intimate within the self, which is something which in our societies we associate with femininity and with women, and women's voices are not given the same credibility as men's voices, so if it's not hard science and very masculine, then it's just a bit fluffy and airy-fairy. And actually, I think that just reflects how we think about genders and their relationship to the world. Um, and it's not a world that I, that a worldview that I subscribe to personally. Thank you very much. A wonderfully succinct opening statements. Normally, a chair has to sort of like cut people off. But <laughs> Linda, I mean, feel free free to take all uh, 180 seconds that you have. Okay, thank you. Um, as, as, as you heard, um, I've studied religion. I've studied religion my whole life. And as you will also know, no one's ever managed to define what religion is. But the older I get, the more I think that the, cl the best that anyone ever came up with was Emil Durkheim. And Durkheim, to paraphrase slightly, he defined religion, and each word counts in this, as practices relative to sacred things that bind into a community those who share them. So he doesn't mention beliefs, he doesn't mention a god, it's practices relative to sacred things that bind into a community people. And if he's right, and I think he is, I think every society by definition will always have religion in that broad sense, because, this was his point, you can't have a society without having shared practices towards sacred things. And he saw really clearly that a lot of religions don't have God or gods. He knew that Buddhism didn't have a God, for example. But he also saw, he looked at the modern world, well, it was modern in his day, at the beginning of the 20th century, and he thought we were moving towards what he called a religion of humanity. So he thought that the sacred thing that we uh, practice around, have everyday practices around, is the human being. And I, he was onto something there. Maybe in our society, you could say our sacred thing is the human child. And you also have to have an, you know, an unsacred thing, a profane, he called it, which would be a paedophile in our society. But final point, because everyone hearing this always says, what about football? Is that a religion? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> final point, there's another bit of Durkheim that people don't usually see, which is also incredibly important and profound. And Durkheim said the other thing that religion does and is, is a reminder that our concepts are all incredibly narrow and limited, and that reality, whatever that is, exists way beyond them. So our words always fall short, and our practices relative to sacred things never capture you know, the, the, the truth of things. So religion is a constant reminder of our fallibility and finitude and our conceptual captivity. Uh, and that's what he meant by transcendence. So in that second sense, I think if we lose religion, uh, we get, uh, it's very dangerous as well because we get to think that our own way of seeing things is the truth. Well, look, thanks so much. I think what you've all done is you've basically sort of like torn up the, the script for the discussion by problematizing all the categories, which is a very good thing. So, Linda, what you're saying there about religion and Durkheim's definition of it suggests that, you know, in a sense that there's a simplistic uh, distinction people make. They think they know the difference between religion and non-religion, and perhaps that's because they're coming at it from a point of view whereby there's one or two... Uh, you know, in your own culture, historically, there's been you know, the Catholics and the Protestants, and yep. we know there are a few other weird things overseas, yep. uh, and then there are people who don't, and that's religion. 
Um, but then once you see religion as being in a, in, 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 in a more expansive way, mm. other things become religion. So then, and then there's this idea of faith, which is interesting, because you said that um, a lot of these definitions of religion, uh, Durkheim's definition of religion doesn't mention doctrine, right? But then people often assume faith is an important part of religion, right? So um, putting all these things together, I don't have a very focused question, but I have a kind of set of concerns that you might want to say a little bit more about. Um, to what extent then are worldviews which see themselves as, as non-religious, mm -hmm. um, say you know, materialistic, rationalist, scientific, whatever it might be, to what extent is it true to say that those things either or both um, have elements of faith or are religions? Mm. I think the answer is it depends mm -hmm. on the kind it is and whether it's um, you know quite an, whether, whether it has that element of practices around the sacred. Actually, some sorts of science do and some don't. And I think you're quite right that our idea of religion got, has got completely squidged up. And Miriam was saying this as well with a particular Western conception of religion in which beliefs, doctrines, and God is really important. But there's another theory of religion which I think is really plausible, which is that. Uh, the archaeological evidence suggests there's always been some sort of religion in a Durkheimian sense. But monotheism is a, is a sort of um, uh, later imposition. And monotheism, where you've just got the one God and the one truth about that God, is really hard to impose on our natural proclivity, which is to find lots and lots of things sacred about it. You know, our family and the household and that grove over there and lots and lots of things are sacred. Uh, and so the monotheists and their priests have to constantly work really hard to define the boundaries of the faith and keep us within that. And, and they're losing their grip in some countries at the moment. And we're going back to this plurality of sacreds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Miriam, what, things you were saying about the, the way in which you think the Western, particularly the European worldview, has been distorting, um, does, does, it f does it follow from what you're saying, or is it part of what you, you believe, that there are elements in which this superior, self, the image superior, rationalist Western worldview actually, you know, uh, is, isn't as perhaps um, free from the things it accuses religion of being beholden to? Do do we do I do I take it as as a given that some philosophies that would uh, proclaim to not hold a religious worldview uh, may have some of the pitfalls of organised religion? I think it's a critique that's been aimed certainly at the new new atheists, but they're not necessarily who I'd want to focus on. I'm probably more interested in the extent to which things like. Um, you know, capitalism is itself a, a form of religion that we're all imbibed in, that most people do worship the dollar uh, or the pound in their day-to-day -day life in ways that uh, is so uh, fluid and so um, intrinsic that they don't even question it. And I think that when you remove um, archetypal structural forms of religion you essentially leave people leave people in a void and within that void bec we live in a world where there is a very very strong uh, uh, economic model which is 
which allies itself with a cultural model in order to render uh, that economic model more uh, effective. And I think uh, once we lose that broader moral framework, we leave, we leave people, we leave individuals, uh, disaggregated individuals, much more at the mercy uh, of the culture of capitalism, which seeks to shape them into just perfect consumers. And so you might think of yourself as non-religious, as being free of the dogmas of religion, but I would argue that many of you believe in real dogmas, the dogmas of the free market, the dogmas that if you buy the latest makeup and the latest shoes that you'll somehow find happiness through them. And for me, those are much scarier um, forms uh, of religion than the ones that I'm familiar with. Mm. I mean, Anthony, the cards on the table, I would be classified as a secular humanist. Uh, all these categories are always slightly problematic. I think you'd be put in the same category. Um, how do you respond when people turn around and say secular humanism? I'm not saying this is exactly what these two would say, but when, when people do say secular humanism, yeah. It's kind of, you know, it's, 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 there's a big element of faith in it and it's kind of like a religion, isn't it? So right. aren't you sort of like pot calling the kettle black? Right. Well, I think the first thing is, is, is to distinguish between the idea that um, secular humanism is necessarily like a religion, you know, intrinsically like a religion, or whether some people who go around campaigning for it um, have... Uh, uh, tre uh, do treat it like a religion. I think that the, the latter is certainly true. There are some uh, people who become very tribal about atheism, uh, campaigning, uh, are not really open-minded, but uh, certainly have a, uh, a very, very strong faith in their own view. But I, don't re I really don't see how anyone could argue that it's an essential component of secular uh, humanism. Uh, to uh, to be dogmatic or religious in any sense. In, indeed, the, the core of secular humanism, I, I would argue, is in a sort of insistent agnosticism uh, about religious claims. I mean, that, you know, historically has largely been what it is. It's only relatively recently in, uh, in modern history that you have people who are sure enough of their views to want to be classified as atheists rather than um, agnostic. Uh, so I, I don't really think... I, I think there are some limited analogies between certain people's defence of secular humanism and the religion, but the idea that there is really no debate to be had here, secular humanism is just exactly like religion, I, I, I think it would be very hard to argue that convincingly. Well, we are... I mean, it's, it's, it's a really good question because we've seen this tremendous change, as you say, in, 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 in uh, Britain in our lifetimes, which is that we've moved from being a Christian-majority country to being a no-religion-majority country. And that's just an artefact of surveys. When you answer the census or a survey about religion, it says, what is your religion? Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, blah, blah. None or no religion. And more people now tick no religion than tick Christian. Not true on the census yet. Um, we've got another one coming up. But on survey after survey, it's got just gone over 50%. And it's much higher amongst younger people, about three quarters of younger people. A huge shift. The Americans said they were exceptional and it wasn't going to happen there. To their shock, suddenly they've gone up from almost nothing to 25%, and that's all young people, uh, since, you know, just in this last generation. So um, uh, it seems like they're catching up much quicker. We've been getting that way for a long time. They're getting that way a long time. But ticking their religion doesn't tell us much. It doesn't tell you that you're atheist. It doesn't tell you that you're secular. It just says, I don't want to affiliate with one of those boxes. Yeah, and, and also um, one of the findings um, of that survey was that religiosity amongst young people, the next generation, 
isn't the same across all religions. So young Muslims tend to be of the same level, if not more religious than their parents' generation, according to self-ascribed religiosity. So it's not like that trend is true of everyone. Muslims are an exception in this country. Yeah, You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I and I and I raise that only only in as much as I think actually that might also be true for people who tick none. So they might be saying none to the way that religion or certainly Christianity has been organized in this country currently. But there's a lot of people, um, if you look at the alternative spirituality market, which in America is a massive market and it's a growing market here. I think it's one of the fastest growing markets in the world. Um, I was writing something about it recently. Um, the the fact is there is a yearning for something beyond ourselves clearly um and the the reality is that current forms of religious organization institutionalized organizations of religion are not offering people uh responses that seem to be the right match to their lifestyle and there are reasons that for that on both sides one is that we've become lazy consumers and religion isn't really about being a lazy consumer it kind of is about you know working on yourself and abstinence and fasting and you know thinking about others before yourself none of that is really great for sales um, and so really what you want is a marketable religion that is, you know, clickbait and uh, can make people feel good really quick and keep them coming back for more, right? That's the whole point is that we live in the age of uh, algorithms that will give you quick dopamine fixes, even for your spirit spiritual ills, uh, but then that will keep you coming back for the next dose. So go on a 10-day retreat, that will change nothing about the structure of your day-to-day -day life and the way you interact with the world, which may be what's fundamentally making you eat are not ill at ease, uh, but you can come back for the next retreat and, and fork out for that. Um, and so, but, but I think fundamentally we are all yearning. I mean, I, I believe that we're all yearning for something uh, much more profound, much higher than ourselves. People express it in many different ways. And I think the challenge for uh, religions, people of faith, people of spirituality, however you want to ascribe yourself, people who I think uh, in general, if I can make this uh, generalization, call for um, a higher uh, meaning than ourselves and for some sort of uh, attempt to work on the self in order to create a better world, um, that we have to think carefully about the balance between how we market spirituality in order to um, help people feed that uh, that need uh, without bastardizing what religion, what faith, what spirituality actually calls upon, and that is working on ourselves. And that's, that's not easy, and it's not actually always fun. I mean, you said you believe everybody yearns for yeah. this something else. And, you know, I, I sometimes think, well, well, I don't. And then I'm thinking, well, okay, so what do you mean by that? Exactly. What do you mean by that? Exactly, okay. Exactly. Now, and then I think, well, the problem there is if all we mean is that everyone wants to sort of not be a complete, you know, uh, sort of nihilist kind of introvert. Um, I've, I've, I've temporarily lost the word you, you mean. Uh, uh, materialist sort of within themselves. That might be true. But, but then does that mean there's a, a spiritual gap that needs to be filled? Or does it simply mean that people need things like connection, purposeful activity and so forth. So I suppose I'd like to ask all of you, Miriam sort of begun her answer in a sense, but perhaps um, Linda, I mean, to what extent do you think, what, what needs do we have that religion has perhaps traditionally filled? And, and do we need religion to continue to fill them or can they, can they be filled in other ways? I think, I mean, I think we're cultural or social creatures. So I think we need meaning. Uh, we need 
we need a reason to get out of bed. We need to think that something's worth doing. Um, and we need to be reinforced in that. So we like to find other people who agree with us to some extent or, you know, form ourselves into groups around that. I'm back to Durkham, aren't I? Um, and we find that in all sorts of different ways. Think of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, the 12 steps. You have to surrender to a higher power. It can be the teacup. It can be almost anything. But you have to get out of yourself somehow. You have to recognize there's something beyond you. Uh, but that's not incompatible with maintaining a really strong responsibility for what you're doing. There is, there is something about that. Yeah, but it sounds like you don't need religion to meet that need. It helps. <laughs> <laughs> not, um, depends what you mean by religion, doesn't it? Right, okay. <laughs> but you need some purpose. We were just talking about all souls. I mean, all souls is a religion, it strikes me. And so are those... All, all the, souls all college, those, Oxford. Know, Eton yeah. colleges, all souls is. They've got incredible amounts of all rituals cults. and symbols. They're focused around uh, a good life, a meaning, which is, you know, the life of inquiry and the scholarship and what, all the rest. They don't see that they are sort of mini, mini faiths. And we, we need, and they give you an enormous sense of importance and self-worth being part of that group. I think we all need those sorts of things. So you're, you're part of a mini-faith. Right. Yes, right. yeah. <laughs> Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Um. Isn't it worth, though, still drawing a uh, distinction between that type of uh, mini-faith, which is a nice expression, I hadn't come, ac hadn't come across that before, uh, and the uh, traditional uh, sort of faith? Now, the, the proposition that we all need a bit of religion, uh, I think the first thing to do with uh, that question is to start looking at it empirically, look at different peers, look at different countries. Now, if we look at Denmark and Sweden, for example, we find what are usually classified as the most non-religious places in the world. They've uh, got Ikea, what are you talking about? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, w w one thing I find particularly interesting about Denmark and Sweden is according to the work of Phil Zuckerman, who uh, some will know about, uh, who spent a, a, a lot of uh, time there, uh, living there and analysing them. And what, what, uh, what he was particularly struck by is that when he asked people what's their, uh, you know, their attitude to God, do they believe in God? They just can't really see the point of the question. It's just sort of, yeah, there may be. What yeah, 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 but uh, three quarters of Danes yes. pay 1% of their income to the church every oh, year. Oh, yes, absolutely. 80% are, have their funerals. Yeah. Three quarters have their children baptised. Right. Those are the most successful churches in yeah. the world. Oh, but they okay. cater for non-religious people. <laughs> who right. And they maintain Danishness as a sacred value, their ethnic yeah. religions. So actually, my friend, the, a Danish sociologist, says yeah. we're more religious than Saudi Arabia. <laughs> I think isn't that really stretching the notion of religion here? I well, mean not really, no. Your key, life rich, your key life moments are celebrated in the church. Yeah. You pay a lot of money to it every year. And yeah. trust in the Church of Denmark is going up and up and up and up. It's a funny sort of secularism, isn't it? 
No, I don't think so at all, really, because they're, they, uh, you know, they're totally uninterested in the concept of God. And I'm sure if you ask them about the afterlife, uh, yes, they wouldn't be much interested in that either. No, but um, no, people didn't. God is, uh, you know, but people think religion it's terribly important to religion. It's not really that important to religion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is a question just, just me to what extent, because there are lots of arguments, I think, where, you know, people can spread, make a concept so thin that everything applies to it. So... For example, everyone's bisexual, really, aren't they? And you say, well, I'm not. You go, oh, no, you ne never once looked at a man and thought he's quite attractive. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, oh, you see. But <laughs> So there's a difference between saying there are aspects of religiosity yeah. which virtually everyone shares some time, to saying everyone's kind of religious. And so when it comes to whether we have a need for religion, whether all religion, I think saying that there are aspects of religion which you find in every corner of the culture, it, it does seem to be importantly different from saying that everyone has a need for religion. But I mean, Maroon, is there anything else you want to <laughs> say about that? Because you seem to be much of the view that people do need religion and, and, and that is an important thing. I think everyone should allow them the space themselves the space to figure out whether they feel they need some form of spirituality in their life. And my personal experience of it is that the most balanced people I know tend to be those who give themselves the space to cultivate a spiritual life alongside other aspects of their life. So uh, it's deeply empirical, but uh, that's my yeah. position. C can I throw in a little curveball here, actually? Because we're talking about religion mainly, I think, in terms of kind of empirically, sociologically, as a phenomenon which we're observing, etc. But isn't there a long tradition in religious thought of saying that that's not religion, right? So if you take Kierkegaard, going to Denmark, yeah, Kierkegaard uh, wrote his attack on Christendom. He thought that his Christian society was not remotely Christian at all. That true religiosity always kind of requires, is always like a pursuit of a minority, really, which involves turning its, its back on society. So in a sense, are we not falling into a trap? I mean, we're talking about the numbers rising and falling. I mean, um, and, and, and maybe this is relevant to Islam as, as well. You know, people talk about Islam, good, bad, etc., etc. And in, in, in arguing for that, they'll often sort of like look at, well, look at the countries where this, that and the other. But it's not necessarily the case that the most authentic form of Islam is the most popular. It's not necessarily the case that to understand what Christian, Christianity is, you should look at majority Christian countries. So um, in, it, are we, could we potentially be doing the religion a disservice by, by treating it in that kind of sociological empirical way and not taking it as seriously as a, as a challenge to the mainstream? Well, you can, but that's, that's liberal Protestantism in a way. I mean, the Protestant move is to say, because the Catholics just do things practices relative you don't have to believe any of it you just as long as you go to mass you know traditionally or church of england as long as you show up now and again for your baptisms or whatever you didn't have to believe anything but the modern protestant move is it's got to be really sincere and you've got to hold it in your heart and those are just external forms and that's kierkegaard yeah. versus the danish church and grundtvig who said no it's just about doing things and it's still an argument about which is the more which is the more real kind of religion yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we, we've sort of had that argument implicitly here, haven't we? I'm saying actually the Danish kind is really religion, and you're saying, no, unless you sincerely believe in God, it's not really religion. Uh, indeed, yes, because it seems to me that, as, as uh, Julian was saying, this is, it's thinned out the concept uh, a bit too much. Uh, it, it just seems to me like what you were getting at, is there a way of assessing what is true religion 
uh, and mm. um, and mm. also what I yeah what's the test for that and I and you know obviously I feel particularly sensitively uh, about this issue as a Muslim because what you might regard as the most popular uh, form of Islam is probably the one that you think of as most prevalent in the media but that's the most unpopular in my community yeah. <laughs> and it's also that that which has done most harm to my community and you know of course to the rest of the world too yeah. but uh and so that's where i slightly uh, would take issue with what we mean by popular you know uh mediatized is not is not popular um i think we have in uh, in islam an understanding uh, we have a, a principle called consensus when it comes to understanding certain practices within the religious community so um, in order for you to undertake an action and to claim its religious legitimacy, there has to be broad consensus. And there are proportions around that, but they're quite high uh, in order for people to recognize that act as legitimate within the tradition. Uh, you know, the majority of actors that you will see who proclaim an Islamic identity today fall well outside of what would be called the religious consensus within the orthodox Muslim community. Uh, and, you know, I say this uh, as someone who clearly probably lives up to what you might think of as an orthodox Muslim. Um, I, I'm saying that sarcastically. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I do subscribe to a form of orthodoxy, and I think the orthodoxy in our in our faith is what protects us from the peoples on the margins who try and claim the same mantle, but actually stand well outside of the consensus that's been built over centuries. Mm. Um, there's a theme which I was we were due to talk earlier, but I, I, I want to come back to it. The, the title of the session is "Reason and the Gods." And it's a question of that relationship between a sort of a rational worldview and uh, faith. And, and one problem with dealing with this is that's hugely problematic. So there are some people who, who would distinguish between rationality and faith as critics of religion, but also sometimes as people within religions as well. There are religious traditions which, which say faith is separate from reason. Reason alone can't do it, you need something else. On the other hand, though, there are traditions... Uh, religious traditions which claim that their beliefs are entirely in accord with reason and so reason and, and, and spirituality are not in opposition because if you if you were to be optimally rational you would um, you know realize that whatever the religion believed was true so it's hugely complicated um, and you, rather than give answers you might explain some of the complications or some other ones but um, perhaps Anthony I mean how do you, how do you see the relationship between uh, rationality and religion are they in opposition does rationality tend to destroy religion I don't really see how rationality and religion can be uh, in conflict much because it seems to me that uh, to speak of reason or rationality is is to allude to giving reasons for things and it seems to me that religious people give all sorts of reasons uh, there's questions whether they're good or bad reasons but, but what you just said about reason and rationality, though, is that I'm, I'm wondering if you're being more diplomatic than we could make you be. Because there's a sense, of course, in which when you're offering reasons, you're in, yeah. you are being rational. But there are two senses of being rational. is being rational in the sense of engaging with the game of rationality and being rational in the sense of, you know, a success thing, successfully putting forward a good yeah. argument, etc., etc. So if we're taking that stronger sense, I mean, right. do you think if you use rationality well, yeah. then you're going to be able to uphold a religion? 
well, now we get thrown back on the, the question which we, we, we simply can't decide, which is what on earth we mean by religion. Right. <laughs> yeah. and the uh, traditional religion, I would say, I, I would say, no, no, as a secular humanist, which I take as a, as a reasoned position, as a result of my reasoning, uh, I would say, no, all the reasons offered in favour of traditional religions are bad ones. Right, okay. Miriam, to, to be a Muslim, does, do you take certain leaps of, do you take things on faith that go beyond reason? Or do you basically, does reason take you to where you believe? So I think that the um, constructed conflict between reason and faith is uh, a Eurocentric experience of faith that actually within the Islamic tradition, uh, reason is a huge part of faith. You can't actually understand uh, in jurisprudence the higher principles of the law without the use of reason. So it's a marrying of both revelation with human reason, which is how you literally deduce jurisprudence. There's no way around that. So reason has always been part and parcel of how you uh, understood the Islamic tradition. Have there been literalists? Obviously there have been who stand outside of that. Uh, but again, I prefer to go with the majority than those that stand, I think, historically on the margins. And for that point, in fact, I just need to point out that so something like, you know, the historical anomaly that is the uh, religious outlook that comes out of Saudi Arabia is, uh, had it not been for oil, would, would literally be a little desert cult. Uh, and and it, and it would have remained that had it not been petrodollars and their ability to push out uh, a reactionary, uh, frankly degrading and historically anonymous, anon um, anomalous understanding of Islam to the rest of the world, um, often to the detriment of how other traditional cultures have understood Islam. Um, and so uh, I, I don't see that conflict personally within my own tradition, but I do understand that um, the, this notion of a leap of faith, I don't feel that I've ever had to make it personally from within my faith. Right, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah I've never made a leap of faith, but uh, speaking personally, I think that it's more rational. Given, If we think about the human mind... And we know now, you know, it's, it, it's evolved and adapted for very practical purpose to keep us surviving. And we're very, very good at, it's good at doing that job, but it's not adapted to being a philosopher. I mean, mm. that's not how we're evolved no. or um, to really thinking or understanding the cosmos we live in. And my understanding of it is that we know now that we can, in principle, never know most of how, what it is. You know, our cognitive apparatus is not appropriate to understanding how things are in the cosmos as a whole. There are some things in principle we will never know. And so it seems to me probably more rational to be agnostic or say, I can't say if there is a God or God or gods or not, and I'm going to make a stand on, on, on that. That seems more rational than being absolutely certain that there is no God or absolutely certain that there is a God, but it's perfectly reasonable to entertain that possibility seems to me the most reasonable yeah. but, but within, but within that say, spectrum. What, what about the position of being extremely doubtful? Yes. <laughs> there are shades of atheism <laughs> from, <laughs> yes, maybe there is something to, maybe there isn't. I, I agree. Do, I do also feel like you, it's slightly demeaning to experiences, like your sensory experiences <laughs> of the world and the idea that there are lots of things that we can't prove, uh, you know, Amartya Sen's notion of trust, which is what the entire economy relies on, notions of love, like these are things that all of us here do believe in. You can't really measure them. You definitely can't quantify them. Uh, you could try, but you can't. And uh, we, yet we believe in them and we believe in them because we could feel them. 
Uh, and so I don't dismiss sensory experience. I know that there are things that I feel that are real. Um, and so I, I just don't like the idea that rationality is the only means of assessment of things that are real in this world. I mean, on the agnost agnosticism point, I, I, I often like to quote what Russell said about this. He said in the technical sense he was an agnostic, in the sense that of course you can't prove God doesn't exist. But that would be somewhat misleading because most people take a Gnostic to be someone who goes, well, who knows? In practical terms, he's, he's an atheist in the sense that because in the absence of any reason to believe in a God, he, acted, he lived his life as though there were no God. So he's like a, an intellectual agnostic and a practical atheist, yeah. if you might put it in those terms. Um, what do you think, and, re and religion being very diverse... What would be perhaps one thing that we've seen manifested in religions that we really ought to jettison if we want to be reasonable creatures? And what would be the best thing about religion that we really ought to and can keep whilst preserving our, our rationality? I don't want to, don't want to put someone on the spot for that because you haven't had a chance I'll to think about it. I'll have a go at that it. one on. because, uh, again, speaking personally, I was brought up in the Church of England. That's my tribe. Uh, I've become increasingly critical of that church. And the one thing I've started to jettison is the, is the basic assumption that's actually common in our culture still, that love is all you need, that love is the prime virtue. And if we could live totally loving lives, everything would be fine. And I've actually had to abandon that because I've been studying all the church abuse and sexual abuse cases. And love and forgiveness has been used again and again and again to... Push, push it under the carpet, say, oh, we have to forgive the abuser, we have to be all nice and loving. And so I think now you have to get truthfulness and honesty and courage in there as well. So I think, the short answer, our deep commitments, so to be a loving person or an honest person, aren't rational. We, they're useful fictions, we stake our lives on them. But we do adjust them in the light of our experience and the evidence. So in that sense, they are rational. Okay. And I've adjusted that one. That's my example. Um, I think the, uh, the question of what, what, uh, what, what's the worst thing about religion, what should be jettisoned, that's actually a fairly easy one. It's persecution of other religions. I mean, that is a, uh, a particularly religious thing. Uh, I think we'd all uh, agree that, there's all that there is no good side to it and it's done the most terrible harm for century upon century upon century. So I think that one's quite relatively easy. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the good thing, well, off the, off the top of my head, I think there are lots of different ways you could answer that. What, the first thing that uh, occurred to me, a uh, good thing that comes out of all forms of religion is some form of thoughtfulness, stop and think. Uh, maybe there's a little bit more than what appears uh, around me. And I'm not talking about necessarily a metaphysical worldview here. It's just take a moment and whatever, smell the roses or whatever the thing is and see where that leads. <laughs> okay, great. Miriam? Um, so I, th I think sometimes we assume that the uh, flip side of conviction, particularly religious conviction, is dogmatism. Um, and I certainly would say that dogmatism can be uh, a problem when it's uh, used as a stick to, to beat others with. So that's t typically the side of any religion that I have a problem with. But I would say if you look at the, um, one of the... I, I also really don't like a pick-and-mix approach to religion. Um, the idea that we can just pick this little bit from there and this little bit from there. I think religions exist as... Uh, internally coherent structures and so uh, to reap the benefits you need to you know undertake the full plan uh, you can't just dip into little segments and expect to get all the benefits you might touch a few but you won't get the full 
the full benefits of it. So, but you know, that was the question, so I'll do my best. Um, I would say that uh, community is the big one. So I think the biggest scourge of our modern age is individualism. I think it's what leads us to uh, be uh, increasingly selfish in our behaviors. Our entire economic system pushes us towards selfish behavior. Uh, and when you combine that with um, strict individualism, you end up with, I think, many of the problems we, we see today, including you know, loneliness among the elderly, which for me is probably one of the saddest scourges of the, the modern era. Um, and I think when you look at what religions do well, they do community really well. Mm -hmm. And they do, um, you know, the notion that I know exists in my faith and in Christianity, and I pretty much am sure that it exists in a form, um, uh, in, uh, in a variation among all forms, is, you know, you don't truly believe until you love for others what you love for yourself. And if honestly, if we could all live from that very basic human philosophy, I do believe the world would just be such a better place. So, um, yeah, if we just applied one, one simple principle. Okay. Well, I mean... This is a yeah. So thank you. So this this kind of event itself, it's a kind of a ritualized practice of coming together around certain structures. Um, there are things we hold sacred, such as you know, not interrupting people, listening, and trying to think. And uh, hopefully, it's, it might bound us together as well. Does this make it a religious gathering? Has it made us happier? I don't know, but I'm, v I'm personally very glad you've all come. And could you please just thank our panel, wonderful panel. Brilliant. Which side of the debate would you fall on? Tweet us at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our time and discover many more debates at IAI.tv.